ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. If you've been around the last couple of months, you'll know that we are preaching through the book of Acts, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're up to Acts 14, as you uh, heard just now, uh, Albert read for you the whole of Acts chapter 14, and so that brings us about halfway through the book. There's 28 chapters, we're up to chapter 14. I got an F in year 11 maths, but I know that that is just about halfway through the book, and we're about halfway through our uh, series as well that's going to take us all the way up to Christmas. Um, and so uh, I just want to bring you up to speed with where we're up to in the book of Acts. Um, Albert, if you heard last week, you heard Albert preach his first sermon, and I thought he did a great job. Am I right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. The, the, the only downside is that I have to follow him and he preached for 16 minutes, all right? And now, so, so now you love him more than you love me and everyone's going to be checking their watches in 10 minutes' time, all right? So just, just, just that was an anomaly, all right? That, we, that was just a gift for one week. Now we're back to the usual, all right? So settle in. We've got a lot to get through this morning. I'm going to go pretty quickly through the first kind of two-thirds and then linger in the last couple of uh, verses in this chapter. But as I said, let me just bring you up to speed. We're up to Paul's first missionary journey. This is the journey that he takes with Barnabas. You remember that Barnabas was the first one to sort of extend the right hand of fellowship to Saul after he was converted. The whole church was freaking out. They thought that he was just tricking them so that he could continue to drag them off to jail and persecute and kill them. Um, Barnabas was the first one to say, this guy's legit. He really is a believer. God really has miraculously changed his life. And so then Barnabas takes him under his wing for a year. He, he disciples him, trains him, preaches with him. And now the two of them are going off together on this first missionary journey. And uh, we, saw, we saw last week that uh, they started out in Cyprus, in Barnabas's hometown, the beautiful island of Cyprus. And from there, they've gone north up into Turkey to a region called Pamphylia. Uh, used to be called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then they've moved into the region of Galatia. So this is where the, the Church of the Galatians was planted. And so they've moved into Antioch in Galatia, and now in chapter 14, we're going to follow them. And we're going to move pretty quickly, but we're going to follow them into Iconium, Lystra, and then on to Derby, and then back, all the way back, down through the Mediterranean, back to Jerusalem. So let's pick it up. I want to uh, just... Rather than going through every verse, we're going to linger on a couple of verses at a time. I'm going to start out right at the beginning. So in chapter 14, verse 1 to 3, this is what it says. At Iconium, so remember that we're up in Galatia now, up in Asia Minor, near Turkey. Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles, the other Gentiles, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. We've established now this predictable pattern that Paul has in when he gets into a new town. 
Um, he goes directly to the synagogue and it's there that he starts to preach the good news. And I find it fascinating and kind of a little bit jolting just at how matter-of-factly um, that Luke reports Paul's um, preaching of the gospel in these places, right? It's just like, of course he did this. It's Paul. But we need to remember, Paul was Saul. Saul was the greatest persecutor of Christians that's ever lived. He was the chief enemy. He was the, he was the SS-style right, um, hunter of Christians in the first century. And, and yet... A few years later, we're here with Paul going from town to town, preaching the gospel, facing persecution, seeing people come to belief in Jesus. And it's just so matter of fact the way that Luke describes it. And I think the reason he reports it this way, matter of factly, is because he wants us to know our meta theme. He wants us to know that these are ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. It's very easy for me as someone who studies the scriptures and wants to be faithful in preaching the gospel, to put a cape on Paul and make him the superhero of the Bible, right? That's not what Luke wants us to see. He wants us to see an ordinary man who's been profoundly changed by God's amazing grace. I remember after I became a Christian, I became a Christian when I was 19 in the US and uh, I remember coming back and the first time I met up with my high school mates that I used to go out drinking with was at a party and um, I was speaking to this guy, Mike, and Mike was, used to be one of my kind of um, fellow troublemakers and he, the first thing he said to me is, uh, it's good to see you back, what are you going to do now? You're back from overseas, what are you going to do? And I told him that I was working at a church as an intern and um, I was going to go to Bible college. And he's like, ha, 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 good one, Smitty. What are you really doing? Like, Seriously, this is, this is what I want to give my life to. God has changed me. And the, the tra- change wasn't as profound and as drastic as it was for Saul, now Paul. But that's the kind of change that Christians can experience when they are, as ordinary people, Empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. And so now because of this profound change, everywhere Paul goes, he preaches the gospel. And there's this familiar pattern. He goes to the synagogue, he preaches there, he sees people converted, he then gets persecuted, and then he goes on and preaches again. It's like preaching, persecution, repeat. That's his pattern. And so that's exactly what he does. He preaches. His, his speaking is so effective that a great number of Jews and Greeks believe. Now, stop there. That's not saying he was this incredible speaker. He just had such a way with words that he was so convincing. Now, he says himself, remember, that he doesn't speak with eloquence. In fact, he was kind of made fun of in early Greek culture because people thought that you know, the, the, the greatest thing you could be was a great speaker, a rhetorician. And yet he wasn't that. He didn't have the, the good words. He hadn't been classically trained. He didn't, he, he didn't have those gifts. The power that, that was at work here that caused a great number of people to come to faith was the power of the Spirit at work in this ordinary man. 
So a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. The gospel, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, has gone beyond the realms of the Jewish people into the Greek culture, the Gentile culture. Just as Jesus planned for it to do, the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now we're up in Galatia. We're up in Asia Minor, and that's exactly what's happening. The power of the gospel is bringing people to faith, and the predictable response is persecution. The Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So this is the second pattern that I want us to see. First of all, the preaching of the gospel, conversions and then persecution. And also this pattern that we've seen throughout Acts where where there is preaching and signs and wonders. There are words and works. You see this right throughout, right? Words and works. They don't only preach with words, but it's accompanied by works, great miracles, signs, and wonders. And they're called signs because they point. They point us to the truth of the Lordship of Jesus. How is this happening? How do miracles happen? How do people get healed? How are people raised from the dead? Why is this happening? Because Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. So as these men testify to this truth that Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. These miracles happen to confirm the truth that Jesus is ruling at the right hand of God. So there's words and there's works. And it got me thinking this week, what are the works that confirm the truth that we are preaching in this church? Right, The words that we say, the gospel that we preach, what are the works that are confirming to the watching world that what we're saying is true. That's what we want to be looking for. Where is God confirming the truth that we're preaching and speaking in works, in signs, in wonders? Well, I believe that he, from time to time, confirms the truth that we're preaching in signs and wonders. We've seen people healed and come to faith as a result. We see it in the greatest miracle that can ever happen, that is, in someone coming to faith in Jesus, in being raised from the dead spiritually. We've seen that happen. I wonder if we see it happen when we gather together for dinner, like we did last night. It seems to me that that's what people interpret as being a sign of God's confirmation of his gospel like I spoke to people last night whose first contact with our church was at that dinner and that was what they were struck by this is a place of grace like I'm having dinner with people here and I didn't have to pay anything I didn't have to bring anything I'm just I just got invited here I'd love us to think more about that what what are the works that God might produce in us to confirm the words that we speak about the good news of the gospel. We don't just want to be a speaking church. All right, so they've gone to Iconium. They've done ministry there. Then they move on to Lystra. This is still in Galatia. Lystra and Derby still in Galatia. And so we read in verse 14 to 17 
what happens as a, uh, in the wake of a pretty peculiar thing that happens. So you heard Albert Reed, they go to, um, to Lystra, they preach the gospel, they do a miracle in, um, in getting a lame man to walk. All the people kind of freak out and think that these two are Zeus and Hermes, right? These great Greek gods come to earth. Apparently in Iconium there was this um, myth that at one stage Hermes and Zeus had come among the people and had lived among them for a time. And so they think, this is, this is happening again. They start freaking out. And Paul and Barnabas don't really know what's happening because the, these people are speaking in Lyconia and they don't speak that. But when the priest starts bringing bulls to slaughter at their feet, they get the picture, right? And they freak out. They say, it says in verse 14, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd sh- shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human. We're not Greek gods. We're only human. We're ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. We're only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, these idols, these Greek gods, these worthless things, to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then they go on, they say, In the past... He let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So he says to them, listen, we are just, we're ordinary people. We're here to witness to the Lord Jesus. He's the one that you should be worshipping. You don't need to sacrifice bulls because he has been sacrificed for you. He is both the sacrifice and the God of the sacrifice. And the way that they communicate, and this is really interesting, the way that Paul communicates the good news to these people who have no concept of the gospel, is he goes really simple. He says, you don't know about this God, but he has given you reason to believe in him. He hasn't left you without witness. This has, was reminiscent of Romans chapter 1, if you've read that, about people being without excuse because God is good and demonstrates him, his, his power and authority in, in the universe, in creation. He says the reason you should know a little bit about God is that God gives you rain. He gives you crops. He fills your hearts. He fills your tummies and he fills your hearts with joy. I reckon there's something for us here. There's something for us in the way that we communicate the gospel to people. Because very often you will hear people say to you something like this. They'll tell you about the the blessings in their life. Isn't it weird that in such a secular society, in such a post-enlightenment, western, secular, humanist society, we still have hashtag blessed. We still have Facebook feeling blessed. People still talk about the fact that they're blessed. Isn't that weird? That doesn't make sense if all we have is flesh and blood. I was talking to a lady here the other day and she was telling me, she's not a Christian, she was telling me how um, her business was growing and she said, the universe has sent us more clients for our business. That's so interesting. The universe has sent us. 
Now, some Christians are prone to sort of dismiss that and say, well, the universe doesn't say anything. Shut up. Or, you know, you can't talk about feeling blessed. You don't even believe in God. Paul doesn't do that. He says he grabs a hold of that. He says, these people know what it is to be blessed and have food and rain. I can work with that. God's common grace is at work in everyone's life, everyone that you meet, irrespective of their beliefs or their doctrines. God's common grace is at work in everyone's life. And you can use that as a platform from which to communicate the good news of the gospel, the other part of the gospel that they don't yet know about Jesus and what he's done for them. And so that's exactly what he does. He, he communicates the gospel in a very simple way. And again, people come to faith. So verse 19 to 21 says this, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back to the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. Yeah, fair enough, right? So they've been communicating this very simple gospel truth about the goodness of God. The crowd is starting to be won over to the good news. And then their opponents appear again. They've come down from Antioch and Iconium, where they've come from. They come and they rouse up the crowd. They, they, they turn the crowd against them to the point at which Paul is stoned. And you need to think about this. This is a very visceral image if you, if you allow your mind to imagine it. Rocks in the hands of people being thrown at someone to the point where they think he's dead. The other day I was walking down the boulevard and some the council guy was mowing the lawns and as I walked past, a little rock flicked up out of the mower and hit me and I went down like I'd been shot, right? I'm soft. Paul has rocks thrown at him up to the point that people think he's dead. He's dragged out of the city Everyone thinks that he's dead for good reason. But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. It's crazy. So what is it that possesses a guy like Paul to preach the gospel, to get stoned to the point of death, and then get up and go back into the city? And then go on to the next city, to Derby, and to preach the gospel in that city, verse 21, and win a large number of disciples, right? If you have just been stoned to the point of death for preaching the gospel, you don't go to the next city and preach the gospel. You take a holiday, right? Take some work cover leave or something, right? At least do that for a while. He's he's in the Mediterranean. Go, Go back to Cyprus and eat cheese for a while. He gets up and he keeps preaching the gospel. And again, I have to, I'm like these Lyconians, right? Part of me wants to worship him. Part of me wants to slaughter some bulls to him. Is this some kind of Greek God? But no, Paul, Luke, 
Barnabas, they don't want us to venerate them. They don't want us to make them saints and draw pictures of them and make icons out of them. They want us to know that they're ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the only Lord, the Lord Jesus. And this isn't just something that happened in the first century. It's not just something confined to the pages of Scripture. This kind of thing, this kind of preaching in the face of stoning and persecution is happening to this day. This past century was the, the, the century, the, the greatest century in human history for the persecution of Christians. Christians are the most persecuted people group in the universe. And yet people still to this day, empowered by the Spirit, preach the gospel in the face of stonings and imprisonment and persecutions. I want to read you one of these stories. This is a few years old now. This happened back in the 80s and it was reported after a a Billy Graham um, conference on evangelism um, and I remember hearing this. There was a guy who um, was preaching a sermon that I was listening to before I became a Christian, right before I became a Christian. And in that sermon, he shared this story, and I was just so struck by it as an unbeliever. This really hit me. I remember weeping hearing this story. It's a story about a Maasai warrior named Joseph uh, from Kenya. Uh, just listen to this and, and just hear the echoes of Paul's own experiences. So the guy reporting it writes it like this. One day a Maasai warrior named Joseph was walking along a hot, dirty African road in Kenya. And he met someone who preached the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? It's exactly the same. Awesome. So someone shared the gospel of Jesus with him and there and then he accepted Christ as Lord and Saviour. The power of the Spirit, mark that, the power of the Spirit began transforming his life and he was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and there share the good news to the members of his tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross, suffering and the salvation that it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. And to his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him, held him to the ground, and the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a waterhole and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wandered about uh, sorry, he, he wondered about the hostile reception that he had received from people he had known all his life. He decided he must have said something wrong or left something out of the story of Jesus. And after rehearsing the message he gave at first, he decided to go back and share the message again. Joseph limped into the circle of hearts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening his wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second 
was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised and scarred and determined to go back. He returned to the small village and this time they attacked him before he had the chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third time and possibly the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the women who were beating him begin to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village came to Christ. What possesses a man like Paul and a man like Joseph to undergo such horrific torture and keep preaching the good news? The thing that possesses them, if you excuse the term, is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit within them that empowers them to keep preaching in the midst of great persecution. And the same is true for us today. It's the Holy Spirit that fills them with such gratitude for what Jesus has done for them that they want to share that news with others and such love for those people that they don't want those people to miss out on knowing it. These are not superheroes. They're ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. I'd love to talk more about Joseph for a while, but we don't have time. We've got to keep going. So let's just jump across. We'll finish up here, verse 21 and 22. He's just been stoned. They've departed for Derby. Verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So here's the thing, right? They've gone from Jerusalem across to uh, Cyprus and then sailed up the Mediterranean up into Turkey and through Asia Minor, and now they're, they're, they've got a really short inland route back to Jerusalem. They don't take the short inland route. They, would, they could have gone through Tarsus, where Paul was from, check in with all of his buddies and his family and see how they're doing, maybe take a holiday, and then take the shortcut back into Jerusalem. They don't do that. They go the long way and the treacherous way, because it involves sailing in a time when sailing could get you killed pretty easily, sailing back through down the Mediterranean. The reason they did that is very clear. The reason they went back the long way is because they wanted to strengthen the disciples. They wanted to encourage the churches that they had planted. They wanted to preach the gospel to the Christians. This is so important. 
This speaks to really what our, the mission of our church is, to be people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. That involves, and the primary means by which that happens is by preaching the gospel to the Christians. Now, here's what I think often happens. What often happens is that churches and pastors, we, we, we find ourselves putting all of our energy and all of our gospel application into the critical cases, right? It's the, the, the unbeliever who would love to become a Christian. Or it's the, the, the struggling Christian who's, maybe, who's, who's really depressed. Or it's the Christian who's about to die. Or like these critical cases where we, we want to go with the gospel and that is vital work. This past week I've spent time sitting down with someone who is very depressed and who needs to hear the gospel. I've spent time preaching the gospel to them. I've spent time with people who are not yet Christians who need to hear the gospel and, and speaking the gospel to those people. And it's awesome. I love it. And it's thrilling and it's vital work, but it's not the whole picture. Friends, we have to, we have to summon the resources of our church. And by that, I mean you guys, the resources that you guys have to preach the gospel to one another. Because Christians must be strengthened if they're going to go the distance. If you're going to persevere to the end, you have to be strengthened. You will not be a Christian when it comes to your dying breath if you're not strengthened along the way. And so that's exactly what these guys did. We could go the shortcut and maybe take a holiday. No, let's go the long, treacherous way around because these Christians need to be strengthened. Just hear Paul's heart for this, all right? This is, he's so into this. He loves evangelizing people who aren't yet Christians. He, 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 he loves that. He loves thinking about big, heavy theological truths. But he really lives for the strengthening of believers. So check this out. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Just hear his heart for this. He says, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ, strengthened, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. He is just, he's sold out to this. He wants to see every Christian strengthened to maturity in Christ. You put a nominal Christian in front of Paul, and he's like, What is this? Strong Christians. That's the mission of every single church, or it should be strong Christians. And that's why they go back, verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. So I'm going to finish with three reasons why I think we need to be strengthened by the gospel. Three reasons that I want us as a church to throw all of our resources into gospel work. And it's interesting, the last 
couple of weeks, I've been writing annual reports. You'll see them come out um, in two weeks' time at our annual meeting. You'll all get a copy of our annual report. And uh, different people have been writing reports, and, and it's been beautiful, like just heartwarming to see that all of our ministries in our church are gospel ministries, whether it's to preach the gospel to those who don't yet know it, to preach the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it, or just the regular preaching of the gospel to Christians who need to be strengthened in the faith. So here's three reasons, all right? I think I got them up here, yep. So three reasons we must be strengthened by the gospel. Number one, to stand strong in the face of false doctrine, false teaching. Number two, to stand strong in the face of persecutions. Number three, to stand strong in the face of temptations. So number one, to stand strong in the face of false doctrine. In Ephesians chapter 4, which is the passage that we've preached more often than any other in this church, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that... uh, that the leaders of the church exist to equip the saints, to equip the people of the church for the work of ministry. And that work of ministry is the preaching of the gospel to one another. And it's to this end. Ready? Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth in the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Do you see that? Do you see Paul's mechanism for strengthening the church? It's in the face of false teaching, in the face of false doctrine, in the face of the deceitfulness and cunning schemes of people who would lead you astray. He says the church needs to speak the truth in love so that we'll be no longer tossed to and fro in the waves. Now, what is the truth that he's talking about there? I had a guy in my last church who was just a complete jerk, all right? He was, he was really blunt, and, and he just didn't have any problem telling people what was wrong with them. And the, reason, the biblical kind of foundation for his being a moron to people and really rude was this. I'm just telling the truth in love. Well, he wasn't. First of all, because he wasn't being loving in the way that he was doing it. But also because the truth that Paul's talking about here is not just, uh, I need to tell you that you smell and you need to use deodorant, right? He's not just talking about telling the truth. He's talking about the truth, which is the gospel, right? Speaking the gospel to each other in love is the antidote for being tossed to and fro in the waves and blown around by every wind of doctrine. Now, there might be a principle there about just speaking the truth generally in love. Maybe you do need to wear deodorant, and maybe I can tell you that in a loving way. That's not really what he's talking about, though. He's talking about being a church that speaks the gospel to each other. And the reason he wants us to do that is so that we won't just be blown around. So many Christians come from churches where they can just walk into a Christian bookstore and pick up the first thing they see, and suddenly that's their new thing. This is what I believe now. And what they don't see is that Christian bookstores are filled with grenades, filled with mines, filled with snares, laid by people who are 
cunning and crafty and deceitful. That's the truth. And it's not just people writing books. It's people standing in pulpits. Right? Where does the false doctrine that we're trying to stand against, where does that come from? It doesn't come from the Muslims. It doesn't come from the atheists. It comes from the Christians. And the most powerful false doctrines that I'm seeing today in our lifetime come from the Bible-believing Christians. It comes from the guys who stand up the front and say, okay, open to Acts chapter 14. It comes from the people who write books with scripture references. That's why it's so powerful. That's why it's so deceitful. That's why it's so dangerous. If we're naive, if we're infantile, verse 14, then we will be just tossed back and forth in the waves. Think of, and this is the picture he gives you, think of a one-year-old in floaties at Jan Juck, right? Just tossed around in the swell. And that's the picture that Paul has of Christians who aren't strengthened. How strengthened? Strengthened by the gospel. So how do we stand strong in the face of false doctrine, which all of us, all of us are prone to believe? How do we stand strong? We speak the gospel to one another. We tell the truth. We speak the truth in love. Number one. Number two, we need to speak the gospel to one another. We need to be strengthened by the gospel to stand strong in the face of persecutions. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to look here for a minute. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2 to 3 says this. This is again Paul speaking. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in Christ, or in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Just mark that word, strengthen. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. They send Timothy, why? To spread the gospel, why? To strengthen the saints, why? So that they wouldn't be unsettled by the persecutions that they must face as Christians. Paul says to Timothy in his letter to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There aren't any options. Like, you can't tick the box, um, yes, Christian, uh, persecution or no persecution. Um, no persecution, please. Right? Like, there's no, there is no form for that. He says, you tick the box, Christian, you get the persecution. Now, Paul and Joseph the Maasai warrior get persecuted by being stoned and beaten with barbed wire. You and I probably aren't going to get that. We're probably not going to get that. But we will face some form of persecution if we live a godly life in Christ Jesus. If you want to be a gospel person, if you want to be someone who shares the good news with people like these guys did, then you're going to be persecuted. 
And the persecution probably will come in the form of some kind of ostracism, right? Maybe you, maybe you won't get invited to that party you really want to be in. Or maybe, maybe you won't be part of the cool group at school or at work or whatever. And this is what we fear. This is the persecution that we fear. In fact, and listen, I'm, I'm trying not to overstate this, but at some level, some of us would prefer to be beaten with barbed wire than be ostracized socially, right? For some of us, that is a a greater thing to be feared than getting beaten up. Social distancing. Now, how does the gospel strengthen you against being swayed by persecution, against being unsettled by persecution? Well, you don't want to be persecuted because you don't want to be ostracized. You don't want to be ostracized because your identity is in being accepted. I'm speaking to everyone here because this is true of all of us to some degree. All of us to some degree want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We're people pleasers. And so the idea that we're ostracized terrifies us. And so we don't share the gospel because that we don't want to face that persecution. The gospel strengthens us by saying your identity, everyone look right at me. Don't worry about the, the, the crying. The gospel says your identity is not in being accepted. Your identity is not in being popular. Your identity is not in being liked. Your identity is in being accepted by the king of the universe. Your identity is in being adopted by your heavenly father. That's where your identity lies. So as soon as you realize that and embrace that and imbibe that and soak in that, suddenly you don't feel like the most important thing in the world is to be liked by people. I mean, it's, it's nice if people like you. You should want people to like you. You should avoid things that make people hate you. But it's not the be-all and end-all. You're already accepted, adopted, and loved unconditionally by the creator of heaven and earth. Ah, so freeing. That's how the gospel strengthens you in the face of the persecution that you and I are likely to face. And so, that's why Paul sends Timothy to the church to strengthen them with the gospel so that they would not be unsettled by the persecution that they are destined for as believers. That's number one. And number two, truth and persecutions. Number three, the gospel strengthens you in the face of temptation. So back to 1 Thessalonians 3. He says, in verse 12 to 13, he says, May the Lord, and this is the blessing that we want to pray of you guys, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you, May he strengthen you, again, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. He wants the gospel to strengthen us in holiness. He wants us to be strengthened in the midst of temptations. Now, if all of us are destined to face temptation, uh, to to face persecutions, how much more are all of us destined to face temptations? Amen? Right? How many times already today have you faced temptations? 
You might have had a temptation so far to leave the room halfway through and go outside for a smoke or something. I know I have. It was a joke. But all of us will face temptations. It's like as sure as night follows day. How does the gospel strengthen you against temptations? Well, here's what I believe. I believe Satan is our chief enemy, and that I believe him and his, his demons are at work constantly to tempt us out of holiness that belongs to us as God's children and into unholiness and sin. And the way that he does this, I believe, is that he will target you where you are most likely to justify your sin. This is really important. Satan and his demons will tempt you where you are most likely to justify your sin. So I'm talking to a guy a couple of years ago, and I find out he's looking at porn, just like most other guys in our church. Um, But unlike most guys in our church, he was justifying it. And the way that he justified it, he said, I love my wife so much, I do everything for her. I'm the best husband I know. I do everything for her. This is the one thing I do for me. That's called self-justification of sin. Yeah, God might say this is wrong, but I'm, I've earned this. I'm justified in this. It's called self-righteousness, and it's the enemy of grace. So Satan's going to get you where you're most likely to justify yourself because if you justify yourself, you'll keep doing it. If you repent, God will change your heart and you won't. So it's a good strategy, right? Now, how does the gospel help you to stand strong in the face of temptation? The gospel tells you you can't justify yourself. That's the message of the gospel, right? You can't justify yourself. There's no such thing as a self-righteous Christian. Only God can justify you on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. So if you realize that, if you realize I can't, be justify, I can't justify myself, only, justif- only God can justify me on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, then you won't respond to conviction of sin by justifying yourself. And if you don't respond to sin by justifying yourself, then you'll be led to repentance. Repentance is saying, I've sinned, I can't justify myself, I need Jesus' blood to cleanse me of sin. Father, forgive me. And suddenly, Satan's device is corrupted, short-circuited. So people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. It's not just a cool saying. Oh, I think it is pretty cool. It's not just a pithy thing to write on the website, right? This is absolutely vital if any of us is getting out of this life as a Christian. If you're not strengthened by the gospel, then you will follow every wind of doctrine. And you will give in in the face of persecutions. And you'll be led astray by Satan himself into temptation and sin. 
So here's what I'm going to say to finish up. Here's two things that I'm looking forward to in the coming year. And you'll read this. This is my, my little piece in the annual report. Last page. The future. As a staff, we got together last Monday and we went out to the church at Bacchus Marsh and we had a prayer and planning day and we just had this beautiful moment where we all coalesced into this same conviction that next year we need to throw everything we have behind equipping the people of the church to speak the truth in love, to do the Ephesians 4 thing. We need to throw everything we have behind equipping and training and enabling people in the church to speak the gospel to one another, to strengthen one another in the face of false doctrine and persecutions and temptations. We need to do everything we can to do that. How do we equip you to meet with one another and read the Bible with one another and keep one another accountable and remind one another of the gospel? How do we do that? Because many of you will sign up and say, yes, we believe in the mission of this church, but we don't feel equipped to do it. We want to solve that problem next year. We want to say like Paul that we strenuously give ourselves to the building up and strengthening and maturity of the church with all of the power that Christ so powerfully works within us. So that's one thing. The other thing, and this is a great cause for celebration unless anyone can bring any good reason not to do this in two weeks time at the annual meeting um, we're going to gather around Jimmy and as a church we're going to commission him uh, to be a pastor in our church so I've been very deliberate he's been here three years now and I've been very deliberate and pedantic with him about him not being the youth pastor Because he has not, he has not been ordained by our church, commissioned by our church to be a pastor, and that there are certain biblical qualifications that one has to meet in order to be a pastor. So, in a lot of churches, this would be the most common practice. If you're sort of the head of a ministry, you're the pastor. You're the head of the youth, you're the youth pastor. You're the head of the women's ministry, the women's pastor. You're the head of the communications, the communications pastor. <laughs> like, really? Oh, maybe it's a pedantic point, but I don't like it. I, I think the office of pastor is a particular office that carries a particular burden of responsibility and a particular set of requirements. And so I've said to him for the last three years, you're not pastor. You'll be the youth director until such time that we think that you have qualified yourself to be a pastor and to the point where the church can affirm that. I believe that's biblical ordination. The church saying, yes. So in two weeks' time at the annual meeting, I want us, unless you tell me otherwise, with good reason, to gather around him, lay our hands on him and say, we affirm this move. And he will be the first to join what will be a team of elders that will oversee the spiritual well-being of the people of this church. And God willing, that team will grow to a, an, a plurality of elders. In the New Testament, pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, they're all they're different terms for the same thing. And that's what we will be making him in a couple of weeks' time. 
It's so important. Like This is vital. Just as much as it's vital for us to be speaking the truth in love to one another and reminding each other of the gospel, so it is vital that we have elders and pastors appointed, that's the same thing, by the way, appointed to oversee the people in the church. So in verse 23, that's exactly what happens. Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. That's exactly what we want to do. So there's a couple of things that I want us to look forward to. The, the Jimmy thing in a couple of weeks, the discipleship thing over the course of the next year. I want you to be praying and fasting for those two things as well. We believe it's exactly what God wants us to do, but we want to hear from you. We want that to be affirmed. So I've got a, a few minutes over time. I'll knock it on the head there, but why don't we just pray together and commit these things to the Lord. Father in heaven, I believe that what we've been talking about this morning is your heart for this church. And it certainly is my heart for this church. And it's being echoed around the leadership of this church. We want desperately to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. We want to be a community where the truth is told to one another in love so that we'd no longer be infants tossed to and fro in the waves and and blown around by every wind of doctrine, but rather that we would be built up, strengthened, established to full maturity in Christ. Lord Jesus, you are our head, and we want you to strengthen us as your body. We pray that in the coming year, this resurgence in our desire to be a discipling church, a gospel-speaking church, that you would bless it and prosper it. Apart from your blessing, it will be a complete waste of time. So please, according to your mercy, bless us. And we pray for Jimmy. We pray for him today as he rides around the bay. We pray that he wouldn't be blown into the bay. We pray that you would keep him safe, bring him back to us. We thank you for all that he's been doing and the way that you've blessed his hard work for the gospel in this place. And we pray, Lord, that when that day comes in a couple of weeks, that it would be a day of great magnitude for him and a day of great encouragement. And that you would bless this church with a plurality of pastors that would faithfully lead and serve your people. So, Father, we believe you've given us a a big vision. And I pray that you would give us the joy of seeing it come to fruition. In Jesus' name, amen.